Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. that just before I preach to have that much attention given to me I appreciate it I thank you for the the good wishes but uh, Paul says we preach not ourselves we preach Christ and ourselves as servants for his sake the word is what's important I'm not although I'm beginning to agree with Miss Gladys she reached the point where she said, let's not observe any more of my birthdays. Because after a while, they become not all that much fun. And uh, 
So I am 64 as of yesterday, but I am two years married as of tomorrow. And so, yeah, so that, so that's good. Right behind the realization that I'm aging, there's the realization that God decided I wouldn't do it by myself. And so that's good. It is wonderful. Turn to Romans 11. I'm going to beg your indulgence. One more week, we're going to talk about Israel. I know that you're all tired of hearing me talk about Israel, except that chapters 9, 10, and 11 have been all about Israel. And so I realize that given my advancing years... I realize that I'm probably not ever going to get to preach Romans 9, 10, and 11 in depth, in sequence again. I mean, I'm going to have to live a long time to ever get back to preaching through the book of Romans again. And so I'm trying to do as thorough but also as interesting a job as I can do of it. And so one more time, we're going to talk about Israel as we finish chapter 11. Now, the theme so far, according to Leon, who has very accurately described the theme the last few weeks, the theme is, it's not about you. But then we're going to get into chapter 12, and you're going to feel the transition into chapter 12, because it begins with the word, therefore... So everything that we've been learning in chapters 9, 10, and 11 are building up to the beginning of chapter 12 where Paul says, therefore, and suddenly it becomes about you. It becomes about your reaction to a God who can do everything we've been studying in chapters 9, 10, and 11. A God who can pull off this kind of control of history is a God who can take care of you. He's a God who can handle your electric bill. He's a God who can handle your sicknesses, your struggles, your cancer, whatever you're going through in your life. He can handle it because he's handling all of human history. And that's what we've been seeing time and time again as we've gone through Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're seeing the grand plan of God. We're seeing the master plan at work. And now Paul is going to give us his conclusion of everything we've been looking at in the last three chapters He's going to make reference back again, as he keeps doing, he's going to reference back to a couple of Old Testament passages that we are going to look at this morning. And we're even going to look at Jesus confirming the theology that we have been learning, the history and the Israelite promises that we've been reading for all these weeks. Even Jesus confirms them so it's firmly planted in the Bible out of the words of the prophets, out of the words of Paul, out of the words of Jesus. I don't know how it is that anybody confuses this information. I think you have to try to confuse this because it's just so plain on its face. And then after Paul 
reaches back time and time again to everything that the scripture has said about Israel. He's then going to go into one of the best doxologies you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Doxology, I'll break that down for you. The word doxa is the word that is translated glory throughout the Bible. He's just going to be so overwhelmed by the glory of God that he's going to try to express in words how glorious, how majestic, how sovereign, how in control this God is. And then having eulogized God that way, he's then going to start what we call chapter 12. It's going to begin with therefore, and he's going to say how you ought to react to everything you know about that God. And let's be clear, you are really, really fortunate if you know anything about that God. Because that God was under no obligation to tell you anything at all about himself. And yet he did. And so if he did that, he did not do that just so that you could sit quietly and say, oh my, aren't I special? (laughs) He did it for a purpose. He did it for a reason. He did it for his own glory. He did it for his own worship. He did it for his own majesty. He did it because he's in the process of glorifying himself. And he's glorifying himself by the way that he conducts human history. And so I think if you try to eliminate theologically, Doctrinally, if you have some system that you use that eliminates the glory that has been expressed through chapters 9, 10, and 11, the glory that has been expressed by the way that God is in absolute control of human history, the glory that God is expressing in the way that he has chosen a people to himself and is going to be faithful to those people no matter what, if for some reason you're trying to get rid of, you're trying to make light of, you're trying to eliminate everything that Paul has already said about the history of Israel, then you are trying to undermine the doxology at the end of all this. You're trying to undermine the glory of God. You're trying to undermine the word of God that has already told you in advance what it is that God is trying to do. In other words, what I'm saying is if you don't reach the end of chapter 11 and join Paul in his doxology, if you don't end chapter 11 and say, what an astounding God we serve. What an amazing God we serve. If your theology, if your doctrine, if your system, if the way you read the Bible undermines or undercuts all the stuff that we've been reading about a future for Israel, then you can't join Paul in the doxology because it is his recognition of God's control over human history that causes him to say, what an astounding God. And so if you really understand everything that he has said so far, you're going to join him in that doxology. You got it? Got it, yes. Let's start at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you become wise in your own estimation, in your own conceit. I don't want you to be ignorant of this that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, says the NASB, that word, that hutos, huto word right there, 
can mean and then, or it can mean and in this way. It can mean equivalent to what I've just described. What Paul has said is God is going to make sure that he gets all the Gentiles, and in the same way, he's going to make sure he gets all Israel. So it can be read and thus, or in this way, or and then, all Israel will be saved. And I hope that last week I clarified what the word all Israel means. It's going to be all 12 tribes. It's going to be the representatives of the entire nation of Israel gathered again. Why? Because the deliverer, Christ, will come from Zion. Paul quoting Psalm 14, 7. And he, Christ, will remove ungodliness from Israel. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and God promises it. Verse 27, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, when we began introducing chapters 9, 10, and 11, all those weeks ago before the flood, you remember way back when, when we were introducing Romans 9, 10, and 11, we started by looking at the end of Romans 11. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, who is they? They are Jacob. They are Israel. They are rebellious Israel. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, for you Gentiles' sake. Remember, he just got done talking about the wild olive branches that were grafted in against nature so that God could make Israel jealous. And so they were kept partially hardened. Part of the nation of Israel was kept under this hardness of heart so that from the standpoint of the good news of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, they were enemies of that for the sake of you Gentiles, but from the standpoint of God's election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise, the unconditional promises that were made to David. The forefathers of Israel have unconditional, everlasting covenants from God. And for that reason, God still, get this right, God still loves them. And if you think God hates them, you're wrong. And if you think God has cut them off permanently, Paul has already said, you're wrong. God has already declared his love for Israel because they are his elect. Now let's talk about that for a moment because we've been talking about the regathering of Israel for weeks and weeks now. And one of the questions that people have been asking me is, well then when? When does that happen? When in the big scheme, in the eschatological outlook of the future, when is God going to regather Israel? Well, the answer comes right from Jesus. And he says it really clearly. And yet because we Gentiles have lost the sense of what words mean, We've lost the sense of what Jesus was actually saying. So let's talk about this for a moment. Israel as the elect of God being regathered the way that Paul has repeatedly said, the way that the prophets have repeatedly said, what does Jesus have to say about it? The reason that God is going to gather them again 
the reason that they are beloved because of the sake of the fathers is because of the nature and the character of God. Now, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but I'm going to say it again. If your theology, if your system says God is done with Israel, then what are you really saying about God? God has said, this is my beloved. Out of all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, you only have I known. And then I elected you, I chose you, I covenanted with you, I sent you my law, I sent you the prophets. You of all the nations on the earth have had relationship with me, and yet I give up on you. Never mind. I didn't know you were going to be this bad. Well, then you're not just making a comment about Israel, you're making a comment about God, about the nature, the character of God. You're describing a God who can say, Tom, I've loved you and I've saved you. But if you act up, I'll forget you. I'll drop you like a two-inch putt. Forget it. I don't need you. That's not the God of the Bible. Is that plain enough? Let Paul say it. The reason they are beloved for the sake of the fathers is because the gifts, the giving, the gifts that God has given Israel in this case, and the calling when God calls people to himself because he has elected them. Remember what Paul has already said in Romans 8, 28. Remember that he has already said that those whom God foreknows, those are the ones that he predestinates. Furthermore, the ones that he's predestined, those are the ones he called. So who is the called? The called are the ones that God has already foreknown, predestinated, intends to justify, and will ultimately glorify. That's the group that are the called. And if you're in the group of the called, then you better really, really hope and pray that God doesn't change his mind about those that he called. So Paul says the gifts and the calling of God never change, are irrevocable, can't take it back. God never makes promises that he doesn't fulfill, never, ever. And who has all the promises? Who has all the covenants? Who has all the prophecies? Who has all the law and the ordinances of God? Who has all that? Israel has all that. And Paul says, look, if they've got it all, those gifts and the calling of God never changes. And again, I'm going to just keep pounding away at this because it frustrates the fool out of me. I just don't understand how people can say God is done with Israel if the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, that's the reason that God still loves Israel, elect Israel. And that just doesn't change. Is that plain enough from the text? Yes. Does it say that in the text? That's what it says. Well, then you're responsible for it. And whatever else you want to say about God, and whatever else you want to say about, about Israel, don't create a God after your own image. Don't create a God who's like you. You might give up. 
You might say, well, it's been an awfully long time. You might say, well, Israel's really bad. You might say, I can't imagine how he can gather all those people who have been scattered to all those places. Don't create a God like yourself. Because the real God, the genuine God, the God of the Bible, can do whatever he wants. And he's already declared to you who he is, what he's like, and what he's going to do with Israel. Is that plain enough? Yes. Okay. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for you, the Gentiles' sake. From the standpoint of God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God never change. They are irrevocable. Because just as you, you Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy after all your disobedience, so these also, Israel, unbelieving Israel, enemies of the gospel Israel, hardened Israel, these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up Everyone, Jew and Gentile, he has shut them all up in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. Salvation is always by the grace of God. It's always by the mercy of God. It's always a result of the finished work of Christ. Always across the board. We are not teaching two ways of salvation. We're teaching one way of salvation, which is always through Christ and always through the mercy and the grace of God. The reason... That he shut Israel up in disobedience is because you yourself were once disobedient and then he was merciful to you. So God has now shut Israel up in disobedience so that he can show the same mercy on them and he doesn't change. Do you understand the theology of Paul so far in declaring that God does not change in his love for elect Israel. Is that clear? That's what it says. That is, in fact, what it says. Let's talk about elect Israel for just a moment. Because the Bible talks about elect Israel a lot. When uh, Jesus was on the planet and he used the word elect, he was referring to Israel as the elect. There was no church at that time. And so his audience, when he was speaking to them, and he would use the word elect, they would naturally think, oh, he's talking about Israel. Here, let me give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 7, 6, God says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. David writes in Psalm 135, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and chosen Israel for his own possession. Isaiah 41, 8 and 9 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Isaiah 43.10, you were my witness, declares the Lord. 
and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he and before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Isaiah 44, 1 and 2. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and who formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Isaiah 45, 4 says, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. He's talking to Cyrus at that point. Amos 3, 2 says, And you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Okay, so what does that punishment look like? Because God chose Israel, and because Israel followed after other gods, because Israel didn't follow after God's law, for that reason, God did keep his word and did punish them. Didn't lose them but will punish them because they belong to him and because God does punish his children. We certainly know that from the book of Hebrews. So then where did God scatter them? As a punishment, he took them out of their land. First, he took the northern tribes, Israel, collectively, the northern ten tribes, and he scattered them. Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 1, says, So it shall be when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set upon you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. He's just giving them the law for the first time. And he says, I'm going to give you blessings and I'm going to give you curses. And I know you're not going to do it. And so when the curses come on you, and I scatter you among all the nations where I have banished you, When all this comes to your mind and you return to the Lord your God and you obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from your captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Get that right. An absolutely sovereign God scattered Israel, and he knows exactly where he scattered them to. And he scattered them not because he's done with them. He scattered them because he loves them, and because he's made a covenant with them of blessing and cursing. And part of that is the blinding that has happened to them right now. And yet there's a day coming when they're going to obey him with all their heart and soul. They're going to obey all that he commanded them. And I will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And if your outcasts, the outcasts of Israel, are at the very ends of the earth... From there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, the very ends of the earth, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Isaiah eleven twelve says, He will set up a standard for the nations, and he will assemble the banished ones of Israel, and he will gather the dispersed of Judah 
from the four corners of the earth. Okay, now he's got the very ends of the earth and the four corners of the earth. He's going to spread them all over the planet, but he knows where they are, and he's going to gather them again. Zechariah 2.6 says, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven. Okay, now he said, all over the earth, every corner of the earth, from the farthest reaches of the earth, and from the four winds of the heavens. By the way, what's under the heavens? If you go outside and you look up and there's a sky up there, there's heavens up there, and then you look down, what are you looking down at? You're looking down at earth. So it's clear that God, in the phrase, the four corners of heaven, the four winds of heaven, is referring to the planet, all the places where he has spread Israel. Zechariah 2.6 in the NIV says, Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven. Why am I saying all this? Oh, I have a reason. Are you sticking with me so far? Yes. Because you're about to have a big aha moment. There's a time of trouble coming. A time of trouble that Jesus talked about and said, that it wasn't going to be like anything before or after it. A time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, that day is great. There is none like it. But it is the time of Jacob's distress. It's a time of trouble, a time of tribulation. We call it the Thalipsis Megas, the great tribulation that's coming up in the future. But that is Israel's time of trouble and distress. But Jeremiah 30, verse 7 also says, but he, Israel, will be saved from it. Now let's answer the question, when is this regathering of Israel going to occur? Matthew 24, I'm going to start at verse 29. I'm going to read this and see if it doesn't make sense now. But immediately after the tribulation of those days. So when are we talking about? After the days of the time of Jacob's trouble. After those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the great clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is the Parousia, the return of Christ at the end of the time of tribulation. And you'll notice that the people on planet Earth are mourning. This is the time when they're running to the rocks and the caves. And they're saying to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. This is when Christ is coming back to establish and set up his kingdom. Can you prove that, Jim? Oh, yeah. Stick with me. (laughs) The very next thing that Jesus said was... And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, which is a sign of gathering. And they will gather together his elect. Who's that? It's Israel in this context. And he will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Exactly what the prophets said. 
The prophets all said collectively that God is going to regather Israel even though they have been dispersed to the four winds, to the four corners of the earth, to the furthest reaches of the earth. And then Jesus himself said at the end of the tribulation, he's going to send out an angel with a great trumpet and they're going to gather together his elect, that's Israel, from the four winds, that's every place that God has scattered them, from one end of the sky to the other. That is the eschatology of Jesus. The eschatology of Jesus includes the regathering of Israel. Do you get it? Do you see when it's going to happen? Do you understand now that the prophets have said it? Paul has said it. Jesus has said it. You can't deny it. And if you deny it, you are saying something really important about what you think of the character and nature of God. Because God does not change and the gifts And the calling of God are irrevocable. Did you understand the time frame that Jesus laid out? Do you understand what's coming? Because there are a lot of people doing eschatology out there. But you can't do proper biblical eschatology without understanding that right in the middle of Matthew 24, which is the big eschatological passage that everybody goes to, right in the middle of it is the regathering of Israel. Jesus himself expects that God is going to do exactly what God said he's going to do. Therefore, we ought to expect that God is going to do exactly what God said he's going to do. Am I alone up here? Are you interested in this? Yes. Okay. Yes, ma'am. The time of Jacob's trouble, uh, is it understood that we're gone by now? It's a whole other topic, but I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to base it on what we just read, that when Christ comes back, the inhabitants of the earth mourn. Right? The church wouldn't mourn at the return of Christ. The church wouldn't run to the rocks and the caves and say, fall on us and hide us from him. Right? So I'm going to say that when Jesus returns in what we just read, no, the church isn't going to be here. But thanks for that extra eschatological parenthesis there. God has shut up, Romans 11 says, everyone, Jew and Gentile, into disobedience so that he might show mercy on all Jew and Gentile. That's the master plan. The master plan in the end is Everybody's guilty. Paul says it at the beginning of the letter. Paul makes it clear that there's nobody that does good. No, not one. So that he can say that God has shut everybody up in disobedience. That's why you were born into this sinful state on this planet. That is why we believe in total depravity. That is why we believe that human beings come out of the womb speaking lies. We're corrupt from the very beginning. The reason for that is that God has shut everybody up in that sort of disobedience for one reason. So that anybody who's saved is saved by grace and mercy and not anything to do with yourself so that you can't take any credit for it at all. It all has to be the result of the glory and the goodness of God who did for you the thing that you could not and would not and did not do for yourself. That's the big plan. Jew, Gentile, nobody has any claim to God has to save me. 
Instead, it has to be mercy. It has to be grace. That is what God is doing in human history. He is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. Turn to Isaiah for a moment. Keep your finger there in the book of Romans. Turn to Isaiah 40. Paul is going to quote from Isaiah 40 as he launches into his doxology. Because he's feeling the same way that Isaiah is feeling. When Isaiah came to the reality of the God that he was dealing with, he said beautiful words. I love the book of Isaiah. And between now and whenever Jesus either comes or I die, I plan to go through the book of Isaiah with you all. I'm going to try to get through everything, every verse in the Bible, if God allows me breath to do that. But listen to Isaiah's words in Isaiah 40. These are the words that inspired the doxology in Romans 11, starting at verse 13. No, let's start at verse 12. He's describing God. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? In other words, God is so large that all the waters on the planet could just fit in the palm of his hand. Who has marked off the heavens by a span? That means who has measured the entire universe with a ruler? And he has some sense of where everything is and how big everything is and what the distance between everything is. Certainly nobody else has done that. But who has marked off the heavens by a span? Who has calculated the dust of the earth by measure? Who knows exactly how many grains of sand are on the planet? Who has weighed the mountains in a balance? In other words, the majestic mountains of the planet, he has put them in a scale and he has weighed them out. He knows exactly how much the mountains weigh. Anybody want to posit a guess how much sand there is on the planet? How much distance there is between stars? And yet Isaiah is saying, God knows all that. So knowing that God knows all that and you don't, verse 13 says, so then who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has ever informed him? There's a phrase that says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God here has never needed anybody to tell him how to do things. Nobody ever directed the spirit of God and nobody was ever his counselor to inform him of stuff. Nobody ever went to God and said, hey, did you notice that? Because God being omnipotent and omniscient, God would know all things and everything and we human beings who can't even measure the distance of space can't inform God of anything. He knows much, much more than we do. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor, who has ever informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? When he created the worlds, when he created the universe, when he spoke the words, let there be light, was there anybody there for him to check with? Was there anybody for him to turn to and say, what do you think of my plan so far? 
There's nobody who he consulted with, nobody counseled him, nobody gave him any understanding. He is that magnificent a God. That's the God we're talking about. That's the God we're reading about. That's the God that we worship and praise. That's the reason that we come here week after week and talk about that God, the God who has absolute sovereign control over everything, who knows everything. No one ever taught him in the path of justice. Nobody ever said, no, that would be wrong. Don't do that. He is the high and holy God, and whatever he does, by virtue of the fact that it's him doing it, is right. Whatever he wants to do, that's what's right. You don't ever get to say to him, I don't like the way you're doing things. I question your judgment on that one, and I'm not sure that morally that's a good thing for you to do. The world is really corrupt right now. The world has been really corrupt for a long time. And he's still sovereign and in charge, which is what causes people to ask questions like, well, if someone is murdered, is God in charge of that? Well, yeah. He's completely in charge of everything that happens in his universe. And if you don't like that fact, you don't get to sit in judgment on his morality because whatever he does is right. You don't know what the end result is going to be of what he's doing. Whoever taught him in the path of justice? The answer, of course, would be nobody. Who taught him knowledge? The one who knows everything. Whoever informed him of the way of understanding? In other words, you never had a thought that was so superior to the way that God thinks that you can explain things to him. Oh, we try it. Oh, we love those prayers where we go, this is the way I'd like it to go, God. I have a pretty good idea of how my life ought to commence from this point forward. And I've got got plans, God, and I think you just need to understand my plan. Who ever informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations, that's everybody, are like a drop in a bucket. And they're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. And behold, he lifts up islands Like fine dust, even if the forests of Lebanon were burned in sacrifice to him, even Lebanon is not enough to burn. That's that's how grand and glorious the worship of God is or ought to be. That even if you burned every tree on the planet, even if you deforested the greatest forests on the planet, burning sacrifices to him, that's still not enough. You still haven't touched the edge of the glory of that God. Nor are all the beasts on the planet enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. We think we're so important. This would be a good time, Leon, for you to say again, it's not about you. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So then, to whom then will you compare that God? 
Isaiah is just a, almost at a loss for words to try to describe the magnificence, the grandeur, the all-knowingness of that God. It wouldn't be enough if you worshipped him with every tree burning and every animal sacrifice. That wouldn't be enough to be worthy of the holiness of that God. Isaiah is trying to find words to express to you the magnificence of the God you're dealing with who the nations are just, they're nothing before him. They're like a drop in the bucket. They're like a a grain of sand before him. So how are you going to explain that God? How are you going to, what are you going to liken that God to? What are you going to compare him to? Finish this sentence. Well, the God of the Bible is like, that's a tough one. Oh, well, he's like uh, everything all the time. He's like collectively all knowledge. He's like in charge of everything. He, he's like everything I've ever thought or can ever conceive of, and yet he's more than that. And yet my thoughts are not his thoughts, and my ways aren't his ways. I can't begin to conceive of what he's really like. Uh, our God is like what? What are you going to compare him to? Romans 11. After everything that we know about what God plans to do with all the nations of the earth and how he has blinded Israel so that he can be merciful to Gentiles, so that then he can show mercy to Israel, finally Paul just breaks out in doxology similar to what we just read out of Isaiah and he starts at verse 33 and says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments? A minute ago I said, what are you going to compare him to? You can't think of anything you can compare God to. Paul says the same thing. How unsearchable are his judgments? You wouldn't have thought of this plan. If you were figuring out human history, the entirety of the world from beginning to end, you would not have come up with this master plan. I'm going to choose a people, elect a people, I'm going to be husband to those people, then I'm going to punish those people, I'm going to harden those people, I'm going to scatter those people, but then I'm going to go save other people to make the first people jealous... And then after I've been good and gracious to people who do not and cannot deserve it, then I'm going to turn my mercy back to those people because I love them in the first place and they are my elect and they are my chosen. That's astounding. That's human history in a nutshell causing Paul to say how unsearchable are his determinations, his judgments, what he intends to do, how unfathomable are his ways. I just like the word unfathomable. Do you know what it is to fathom something? Uh, We still use the word fathom when we're talking about the depth of the ocean. We measure the depth of the ocean in fathoms. Something that is unfathomable means that you can't measure it. You can't figure out the depth of it. You have no knowledge, no way to Understand the depth of the knowledge and the wisdom and the judgments of God. It's all beyond you. And because it's all beyond you, all you can do is get on your face in front of that God. That's all you can do is worship that God. All you can do is go to that God and say, have mercy on me because I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm 
I'm in desperate trouble if you're not good to me. But you're not going to figure him out. You're not going to counsel him. You're not going to inform him. You're not going to instruct him. You're not going to tell him the way that you think things ought to be done. Because verse 34, quoting from Isaiah 40, For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has been his instructor? This is why I said, obviously, Isaiah 40 was in Paul's mind as he began this doxology of the glory of God. No one has ever known, comprehended, understood the mind of the Lord. May I also say parenthetically, yes, you can, Jim. I'm going to because I have a microphone and you don't. The Bible is so deep, is so full of information, is so full of endless enlightenment and understanding and knowledge that no man in this lifetime has ever gained actual expertise on the Bible. If anybody could achieve expertise in the Bible, then it can't be the word of God. But the fact is, no matter who it is that's talking about the Bible, they do not have exhaustive knowledge of the Bible. They're going to eventually reach the edges of their capability. There might be some people that are good on soteriology, some that are good on eschatology. There might be some people that are really good in prophecy and the history of the Bible. There might be some people that are really good in language and figuring out the derivation of words there. But there's nobody who has absolute expertise on the word of God. Otherwise, it cannot be the word of God. Who has known the Lord? Who has ever become his counselor because his ways are actually unfathomable his thoughts the way that he works and the things that he says are beyond human comprehension in the end so if you have any comprehension if you have the least little bit the least little glimpse of that God say thank you get on your face in front of that God And say thank you, because he was under zero obligation to anyone or anything, and yet he let Charlie know something about him? He introduced himself to Micah? Come on, Tony? You know what I'm saying? Come on. I mean, come on. The God who you can't begin to conceive of or understand, whose judgments are unsearchable and unfathomable are all his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody's understood the mind of the Lord. Nobody knows what God is doing moment to moment. There's nobody in this room who has such wisdom that they can say to God, this is how you ought to be doing it. Or I have a complete understanding and comprehension of what God is doing, what he plans to do, what he did yesterday. Nobody has any idea what the mind of the Lord is actively doing right now. No one has ever been his counselor. And now he's going to quote from Job in verse 35, who has ever given to God that it would be paid back to him again? This is a continuation of Paul saying, it's got to be mercy. 
It's all mercy. It's all grace. Even your understanding, even your comprehension is nothing but God's mercy and grace. And he's not giving it to you because he owes you something. Whoever gave something first to God so that God would give back to him. No, whatever you got from God, God gave you as a gift out of kindness, out of mercy, out of goodness, because from him, through him, to him is everything. Everything is from him. Everything came through him. And everything is for him. And everything is back to him. Why did he make you? Why did he make the planets? Why is there enough oxygen to keep earth going? For him. It's all him. It's all for his glory. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. How many times have you heard me say that through the years? Here Paul is saying the exact same thing. Everything came from him. Everything works through him. Ultimately everything comes back to him. The only reason that the people he wrote down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, the only reason that they are sustained on this planet and then end up in his presence was because he made them, he made them for himself, and then he calls them to himself, and then he brings them to himself, and they're there for his glory because it's all about him. You get it? Oh, the wonder and the glory of this God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him is everything. And to him belongs all the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Paul even wrote amen there. Verily, verily, it shall be so. Amen. Okay, so do you have some sense of what Isaiah, what Paul has concluded at the end of what we call chapters 9, 10, and 11? Do you have some sense of the magnificence and the glory that God is demonstrating and the way that he is just kind of showing off in human history to show that he is the only God that exists because he has complete control of everything that happens inside his creation? That's the God we're talking about, who you couldn't burn enough, you couldn't kill enough to sacrifice to that God. So then, so then how do you worship that God? You don't know him. You don't know what he's thinking. You don't know what he's going to do tomorrow. You don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. You can't add one cubit to your stature or one hair to your head. You're completely powerless in this equation. So then how do you worship a God like that? Do you hear me? Yes. You look like an oil painting in front of me. How do you worship that God? Chapter 12, therefore, knowing everything you've heard, knowing everything you've seen in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, knowing everything about the magnificence of that God, I urge you, therefore, that's Paul saying, 
Now I'm going to tell you how you ought to be, what you ought to do. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, it's through God's mercy that Paul even knows anything, and he recognizes that, and he recognizes that his ministry to the Gentiles and to the Jews is a result of the mercy of God, God being gracious and good to him and not leaving him to himself. I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, and I hope that that same mercy comes to you. I hope that that same grace is inhabiting you, and here's what you ought to do if that is true. I say, present your body as a living and a holy, separated sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do you worship that God? That incredible God. That astounding God. That gracious and merciful, long-suffering God. How do you worship that God? He says you do it in how you live. How you walk out your life in your body. Now notice that throughout the Old Testament, whenever you saw the word sacrifice, that meant kill something. Sacrifices died. You slit their throat, you burn them, you killed them. That's what it was to sacrifice. Now Paul is talking after the cross and the finished sacrifice of Christ for sin and salvation. He now says you can still sacrifice to God, but now it's a new and a living sacrifice. Instead of killing yourself in sacrifice, the way you live is a living sacrifice to God that is holy and acceptable to God. And then I love the last phrase, that is your spiritual service of worship, says the NASB, that is the Greek word logikos. What word do you think we got in the English from the word logikos? Logic. Logical. And so some of your translations, like the King James, will say, that is your reasonable service. That is just your logical service to God. If you know the God I'm talking about, and if you don't, I'm not talking to you, but if you know the God of this Bible... It is only rational, it is only reasonable, it is only logical that you would walk in a way that represents that you know that God. How hard should I push? All the way. Oh, you don't want all the way. Look, I'm 64 now. I don't know how many more good years I got in me. Of course, none of us do. I don't know how many more times God's going to give me the breath to stand up here, talk about his word. But I know this. I know when I stand before him, I got to give an answer for what I did with his word and what I said to the people he gave me to talk to. And I don't take that responsibility lightly. It keeps me up at night. I've described it to Jeff and Micah and Tom as the constant wrestling match that I have going with God. I got to tell you the truth. And sometimes truth hurts, but I got to tell you the truth. We still friends? Yes. Okay, good. I'll check with you in five minutes. If you know this God and you are conducting your life in sin, 
and you know you're conducting your life in a sinful way, and then you justify your sin, well, I like pornography. It makes me feel good. It, it fires off positive endorphins in my head. Well, then that is rebellion. And don't tell me you know the God of this Bible, that magnificent and holy and righteous God. Don't tell me that you're a Christian if you're walking in rebellion because you're rebelling against the God who made you and you're playing a really dangerous game. Don't play it. If you're walking through this life in adultery and you say you're a Christian, you better think again. You better go back and look at the word of God again, and you better assess your relationship with God again, and you better ask yourself, am I really worshiping through sacrificing my body, am I really worshiping that God, or am I justifying what I want to do in my body because it makes me happy? Yeah, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your happiness. It's going to cost you some happiness when you sacrifice. But that's what sacrifice means. If it feels good, it's not sacrifice. The Bible says, let him who is taught in the word share with the one who teaches in all good things. Are you giving? Are you giving sacrificially? You're supposed to. The Bible says so. I just quoted one of the many verses that says you're supposed to. And so you say, well, I can't. Gee, that would hurt me financially. Or, gee, that's a difficult thing for me to do right now. My wife wouldn't be happy if I took some money out of the checkbook. You, you can have your reasons. You can have your justifications for why you don't do it. But right here, Paul says, sacrifice. Living sacrifice. Are you living out your life in a way that is sacrificial to that God? If you're living sacrificially to that God, you're expressing your love for that God. You're expressing your worship to that God. And you are expressing the value of that God in your life. But if you want all the benefits of God being in your life and you don't want the sacrifice, then you're not really worshiping him. You're making him worship you. Because you're doing what you want to do, and he's just going to have to clean up your mess. Quit it! Now look, I don't mean to get angry and ranting. Let me put it in a positive here. God loved you so much that he chose you before the foundation of the world. What's that worth? What's the value of that? God loves you so much that he has sustained you and fed you and given you breath and given you health and given you a keen mind all the days of your life. What's that worth? Everybody here has a car. That's how you got here. Nobody's running around naked, thank goodness. Most of the people in this room ate some breakfast and they can see their way clear to lunch. Everybody in this room has been so phenomenally blessed by God. What's that worth? And oh yeah, he's the high and holy and separate and majestic 
creator of everything. Everything exists so that it can come back to him. And he's the one in control of human history. He's the one that has all knowledge. He's the one that nevertheless chose you despite yourself. What's that worth? And I'm not just saying in money what's that worth. I'm not saying put a dollar value on it. I'm saying put your body on it. What's it worth? You're going to sacrifice But I like my sin. I like doing the stuff I know I shouldn't ought to do. Well, then you're a rebel. Get used to it. Do you worship that God? Do you praise that God? Does that God mean something to you? Do you really want to honor that God? Do you really want to worship that God? Do you love that God who first loved you? Well, then what's too great a sacrifice? If you burned all the trees and killed all the animals, that's still not enough worship for him so then what's too great a sacrifice that should be the inspiration for why we walk different for why we live different I said on Wednesday night here we were talking about you are what you are and I said I'm Chinese and Ming immediately said oh no you're not because you are what you have the characteristics of being And if you are a God-loving Christian, you will have the characteristics of loving God and walking like it. How often have we seen in the Bible, he has saved you, now act like it. And I don't care what your secret sin is. It's not between me and you. You don't have to tell me about it. I don't care. I'd probably rather not hear it. I got enough junk going on in my head. I don't need you. This is between you and God. This is between you and the real, biblical, ever-living, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, can't-hide-from-him, doesn't-change, God. It's between you two. Now go figure it out. Go work it out. And I, like Paul, am going to say to you, I urge you, therefore, knowing everything you know, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and a holy, a separate sacrifice to God, acceptable to God. God accepts your worship when your worship is living in such a way that it is designed To his glory. Acceptable to God. Because that is your logical service of worship. That's just logical. That's just rational. You say you're a Christian. Be one. You say you believe the Bible. Do it. It's just logical. That's just rational. Which means when you make your excuses and you go into your rebellion and you come up with reasons for why you want to do the things that make you feel good, you're not even being rational. You're hurting yourself. You're acting against your own better interests. Don't do it. Don't be conformed to this world. Oh, there's the truth. Do not be conformed to this world. The world hates God. Don't be like that. The world is going to not only engage in sin, but encourage the people who are living in sin. The world is going to act. 
you all know, you can go on the internet anywhere and you can look up what's taking up the most bandwidth on the internet at any given moment. It's pornography. It's all pornography out there. That's the world. That's what the world is like. The world that hates God. The the world that is into self-satisfaction. The world that is into whatever feels good and avoids pain. That's me. I'm all about that. That's what the world is like. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you been converted? Has God put his spirit inside you? Well, then that is the beginning of the born-again experience where your mind is being renewed. So be transformed in the way you walk, in the way you live, in the way you think, in the way you behave, in the things you do. Be transformed because of that renewing of your mind so that you can demonstrate, so that you can prove, so that you can test what is the very will of God and what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be good. Be acceptable. Be worshipful toward God by how you live. Got it? Don't you love that God? Yes. Aren't you astounded by that God? I constantly marvel at that God because I can read this Bible. And this is my, what, third time through this section of the book? Because we taught through the book of Romans in my house 20 years ago, 20-something years ago. And then a few years ago, I did Israelology in Romans. We went through it all again. And now here I am doing it again. And you know what? It's as new and as fresh and as revelatory as it's ever been. It's like I'm reading it for the first time. You pick up the Bible, you crack it open, you read it, and you think, where was this last time? I, I wasn't here last time I read it. Or else I'd have noticed this. But the Bible is alive and living and more powerful than any two-edged sword dividing to the very bone and marrow. I mean, it's, it's cut right through you. It, it knows you better than you know yourself. It's describing you. It's describing your relationship. It's describing God. It's describing history and eternity. And you're right here in the middle of all that. I, I think, I think. You know what I think? Ask me. What do you think, Jim? What do you think, Jim? Good. He's the only one who wants to know. I think if you have any possibility that you could please that God, you ought to do it. You ought to walk after that God. You ought to behave after that God. You ought to worship him with your body, which is your logical service. If ever I love thee, Let's sing, my Jesus, I love you. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee,
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.